Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. Welcome in to Next Level, Inside Carolina's show with Greg Barnes and myself, where we dig a little deeper. If you were with us a couple weeks ago, maybe three weeks ago, we had the legendary Anson Dorrance. And that was part one. It was not expected to be part one, but the conversation was so great, it turned into part one. And this is part two. Dorrance joins us. And coach, I'm going to get right into it. When we left the end of the last episode, I asked you about the the way that things have changed over your 40 plus years. And I discussed Frank Martin's quote about parents and that the kids have not changed. It's the parents that have changed. And I wanted to get your take on your evolution in dealing with not necessarily the, the players and the kids and the young women, but the parents aspect of it. So let's get right into it. I am always fascinated to hear what you had to say, but especially on this topic, because I have teenagers myself. So I want to hear how you have dealt with it and been so successful over the years. Well, um, this is an area that I consider absolutely critical for anyone in the coaching profession. And I talk about this uh, uh, constantly because I think this is the biggest challenge we have right now. And even though um, you're sort of implying that, you know, the parents haven't affected their kids, the parents have affected their kids. And so the story I'm about to tell you is, you know, how the parents are, you know, are basically destroying their own children. Um, and so uh, what's really cool about working at a place like uh, the University of North Carolina, or my assumption is any elite university that has scholars that study the stuff for a living, but uh, periodically, uh, uh, our athletic director will bring in people to inspire us, but also sometimes people just to teach us. And I can remember uh, back in uh, 2012, we brought in the reigning eminent uh, sociologist uh, on our campus, and he was lecturing us. And even though I can't remember all the details of his lecture, it had a very powerful impact on me because of the first two slides. And the first slide was actually something very memorable for me because the top of the slide had the year 1969 on it. And for me, that's a memorable year. That's the year I graduated from high school. And so all of a sudden this first slide comes up and here this kid is coming home from school with all F's on his report card. And you witness the parents screaming at the kid. And then he flips to the next slide. The next slide is the year he was lecturing, which was 2012. The kid's coming home from school in 2012 with all Fs on his report card. And now the parents are screaming at the teacher. So here's what's happening to this generation of kids that we're currently coaching. The parents are all consumed with, I guess you could generally describe as this thing called the self-esteem movement, where some, you know, maybe <laughs> Dr. Spock convinced them that here's the way to raise your kid. Make sure your kid never suffers. Make sure they never fail. Make sure, you know, everyone gets a trophy. Make sure your little darling's ass is kissed until you hand them off at the age of 17. And what this is doing is completely destroying the kid uh, because this is the classical snowplow parent that makes sure that every single obstacle is pushed out of the way so their kid doesn't basically experience adversity. And God forbid if this kid is ever responsible for anything that happens to him. No, no, no. If they've had any failures, no, 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 it's not your fault. So it's, you know, the parents screaming at the teacher when a kid gets a poor grade. And of course, it's not the teacher's fault. It's the kid's fault. And what's happening right now is parents are so protective. They're so concerned about their kids experiencing any pain uh, that they're trying to protect them from all accountability which is absolutely ridiculous. I mean, the way we shape ourselves and the way we grow up is actually through failure. 
one of my favorite cliches of all time was uh, extended to me by a, uh, a teacher on campus that was uh, asked this question as all the teaching award winners were asked uh, in uh, the Gazette, the University Gazette that we all read. And they were saying, well, you know, which teacher in your life has had the most impact on you? Was it your kindergarten teacher, your, you know, your high school teacher? Was it the grad assistant you had when you were in college? Which teacher has impacted you the most? And this guy gave a profound answer. He said, the greatest teacher I have ever had is failure. And I'm thinking to myself, well, you know what? That's been my greatest teacher too. Because I'll tell you this, when I fail, I want to rectify it. So what I start doing after I fail, let's assume we've had a miserable season or we've lost a game or something's happened. I'm looking at it and saying, what could I have done? Uh, and so for me, uh, yeah, failure is an extraordinary teacher. And what's happening right now with this self-esteem movement, our kids are not experiencing failure anymore. They're being protected from it. And I think one of the greatest contributions sport can have for a child growing up is failure. Because then they get to make a decision. Because you know what? It doesn't matter if you fail in sports. So what if you suck? I mean, your life hasn't will not end just because you're a miserable, you know, softball player or basketball player or soccer player. No. And so you get to decide on whether or not you want to be any good. Because you know what? If you do want to be good at something, you're going to have to invest in it. And so what's the feedback you get in sport for investing or not investing? If you don't invest, you're not going to succeed. And if you do invest, you're going to be paid something back. Uh, and a lot of times what you're paid back is success for your commitment and work ethic and coachability and all these other uh, qualities that uh, I think I shared with you in our, our last uh, uh, get together. So for me, uh, this is the travesty of parents now raising their children, raising them with the illusion that if they protect them from pain, uh, they are producing a remarkable individual. And I want any parent listening to this as you're not. If the kids have failed, make sure they have full accountability for it. And then they can decide on what they're going to do. Anson, those, those are great points. And as Tommy noted, his kids are a little bit older than mine, but both of us have done some, some coaching. And we have both encountered that, uh, where, where parents just have a hard time allowing their kids to fail and, and want to find excuses. Um, and with our kids being around other kids that come from that kind of mindset, it presents some challenges. What, one question that I, I did get after our last conversation, I think it applies here, is how do you balance the idea of kind of unconditional support that you've talked about with your players and kind of you uh, the competitive drive that's necessary uh, while also being harsh with them? Is, is that kind of a balancing act? Not really. And I think harsh is a poor word choice. I guess real is a better word choice because what we do is we share with them data. Now the data, if it's not in your favor, is going to feel harsh, but the data is what you've produced. And so basically uh, when I'm sitting down with a player and we're evaluating his, his progression, we are showing them data. And the way we try to organize our data to make it very simple for them to sort of classify uh, in their own minds what's going on is every player is ranked in all the different competitions we structure. So let's assume we have a 30 player roster. On a 30 player roster, ideally four of those kids are goalkeepers. So they're in their own competitive cauldron. But the other 26 are in the field player competitive cauldron. And then let's assume like in a typical fall, we have 28 different competitive categories. Each kid is ranked from one to 26 as a field player in those 28 different competitive categories. And so that can be harsh, especially if you want to get on the field and you're basically sort of below average. So you're, you know, ranked from 20th to 26 in all these different categories. That's probably not going to get you on the field. So then this is where uh, the player gets to make a choice because some of the categories are fitness categories. Uh, fitness is not something you inherit. It's something you develop. And so no one, you know, leaps out of the womb cardiovascularly fit. If you end up cardiovascularly fit, you've worked for it. And it was painful. Anyone that runs and can tell you that, you know, the sort of fitness investment you make 
if you want to be uh, a, an efficient you know, runner cardiovascularly, there's a lot of pain involved. And so I'm using that because that's an example everyone can identify with. But all the other uh, categories are a question of investment and time. And so it's based on how committed you are to your own development and growth as to whether or not you're going to succeed. So when we do present them with their rankings and we present it from the analytics team on a nightly basis, so every single night in an email, they get a ranking from that day's practice. Let's assume you have five different exercises in that practice. You're ranked from one to 26 in each of those five. And then the analytics team will give you an overall practice ranking based on the strength of the exercises you did in that practice. Now, sometimes it's going to feel harsh, but that's just your perception of where you're ranked. Because some of the kids can look at a low ranking and it won't be harsh because they know they've been lying on the couch, you know, eating bonbons all summer. So they know they don't deserve to be any higher than where they actually are. Now, obviously, to protect themselves from their parents who have seen them as the best thing on the field ever since they were born, they probably protect themselves by, you know, feeding their parents some line of BS, uh, sort of implying that, you know, uh, we missed something in the ranking. Or uh, I've even had parents that, you know, uh, invent medical issues with their parents, uh, with their uh, kids, for their kids, so they're not held accountable for, you know, different fitness standards. Um, but this is just a loving parent protecting their kid from pain and accountability. Uh, but basically, uh, the reality is this is competitive athletics. In competitive athletics, there's winners and losers. And we try to construct our practices just the same. So that practice is preparing them basically for the real thing, which is uh, the matches. And so hopefully what ends up developing these kids? Yeah, failure. Let me ask you a question related to that is, and you've done it for a long time. At what point do you realize that player A is just not good enough or, or they've maxed themselves out? How do you know when somebody's maxed out on their ability from a coaching standpoint and how far you have to push to see that max? First of all, uh, no one's maxed out. Certainly between the age of uh, 17 and 21 in my age span, no one is maxed out because uh, I've trained the best players in the world post 17 to 21. And trust me, at the ages of 17, 18, 19, 20, and 21, they weren't as good as they were at 27, 28, and 29. So very rarely is anyone that I'm coaching maxed out. Uh, so we uh, have this cliche that we live by called live on a never ending ascension. So whenever we do any sort of testing, we want the uh, tests to be basically improving every single time. So if you look at the, uh, the athletic platforms of vertical jump, agility, uh, acceleration, speed, and this cardiovascular thing that we uh, test with the beep test, uh, we want them improving constantly. And so uh, we don't want them maxing out. And so there's some sort of science they can follow to improve in all of those different categories. And then we've got, you know, 12 different technical testing categories where they can also improve by doing things like living all on a wall or playing 1v1 or all these different exercises that we're encouraging them to do in the summer in preparation for taking the athletic and technical tests when they arrive back here in August. And so uh, there is uh, no maxing out. Now, is it true that some people are just more gifted than others and there are some that are more talented than others? Absolutely. Um, and uh, it's gonna be tough for some kids uh, without talent to compete with a kid that works as hard as the kid that's not as talented. But here's what ends up happening usually, and this is sort of the human condition uh, rearing its head for us. Usually if a kid isn't particularly talented but wants to survive athletically, invariably they're harder working. Because what does the talented athlete get to do? The talented athlete gets to coast. And in coasting, because they're so talented, they still get to play. They get to start, they get to play maximum minutes. Uh, but eventually they collide with someone with equal talent that's harder working or more competitive. And then that's when it's sort of like the line in the sand. And now they've got to decide, holy cow, this guy's just as fast as I was. And usually I just kick it past him and run. 
And now that's not going to work anymore. Maybe I have to develop some deception in order to beat the player that's just as fast as I am. So now they're challenged to go from one level to the next to now they've collided with someone with equal talent. Usually that collision happens for the first time for a lot of these kids in college. Because usually within their genetic cohort, you know, at, you know, Chapel Hill High School or, uh, you know, the Courage FC football club in Raleigh, Durham and Chapel Hill, um, uh, they're pretty much the most talented athlete in the roster. Now they all of a sudden they enter the University of North Carolina. So now the superstar from North Carolina is colliding with the superstar from Southern California, the superstar from Dallas, the superstar from Chicago and New York and the DC area. And it's like, whoa, yep, this is different. Rolling out of bed and starting is not happening at the University of North Carolina. So now I know why that coach mailed me that preparation tome that I lined the bottom, bottom of my parrot's cage with that I ignored <laughs> because every single day of my life, I've rolled out of bed and I've kicked everyone's rear end in. Now I can understand why, because, oh my gosh, everyone's just as athletic, just as committed, just as competitive. But now that kid that's just beating me out for my position, that kid worked harder all summer than I did. But what am I going to do? I'm still going to whine to my parents about something. They're going to protect me from the chaos of the universe. Uh, they're going to believe me because uh, they have not attended all these practice sessions where my ass has been handed to me in every practice. So I can tell my parents anything and they're going to believe me. And so then there's this, this virtuous cycle that rotates between the player that is BSing the parent about what's happening and the parent that is now righteously indignant because they've believed the little liar uh, that, you know, nothing has been fair about their evaluation in practice. And now the parent feeds back to the player uh, from the garbage that the player fed the parent. So then you've got this, you know, this ridiculous cycle uh, that just isn't good for anyone because surely the kid wants to play. So if the kid wants to play, they should be completely honest to their parents. Oh my gosh, was this an awakening? Boy, is everyone good. So it's not going to be easy uh, for me, mom or dad, to get on the field anymore. I might have to work. Uh, so, you know, I've got to commit myself now. And so if a, a kid does that and sort of embraces the fact they've got to get some work done, that's the first step in their rehabilitation on the way to becoming an extraordinary athlete. Anson, along those lines, uh, you talk about the, the human psyche. One of the fascinating components of that, maybe the most fascinating, is that we tend to be the, the hero of our own story. And uh, <laughs> we, we construct reality uh, around ourselves, and it may not be the, the actual reality. And kind of to your point, uh, I, I've seen it. I've seen it here in, in southwestern Wake County where kids are the best from day one. And then they get to inevitably get to some point where they're no longer the best. And as you say, all these different excuses kind of come out. How do you handle that? I know you talked a lot about kind of the personal narrative. How do you handle that in terms of, hey, this is what your narrative may be, but this is what the truth actually is? Well, obviously, I don't even discuss their narrative. Uh, what I want to do is I want to get them to the truth as fast as possible. So basically we look at uh, uh, their player development platform uh, with 10 different things to address. And we've got some sort of numerical uh, system to assess where they are in self-discipline, competitive fire, self-belief, love of the ball, love of playing the game, love of watching the game, coachability, grit, connection, and energizing. We've got sort of numerical ways to uh, sort of assess where they are. Uh, and then we, we make rec recommendations to them. Um, on you know what they can do to change their place if they're not where they want to be. And what everyone wants to be is they want to be on the field. And I get it, <clears throat> uh, but uh, uh, you've got to work to get there, especially in a program like ours where every kid's got some talent. And then what it comes down to, you know, once we're all level on talent, it comes down to, you know, work ethic, commitment, you know, working harder, uh, working smarter, and all the, the cliches that all of us have stolen from Dean Smith and Roy Williams and uh, Hubert Davis. I mean, all the elements that Carolina basketball has been preaching for years. 
And so this is the challenge for the kid. The challenge for the kid is to realize, yep, I think there's another level in me and I haven't achieved it yet. Uh, and then uh, not, you know, rely on, you know, having a parent protect them from the possibility they don't deserve to be on the field. Uh, why don't embrace it and get to work? Uh, so, uh, uh, and that's the challenge. It's not easy for a parent that's not in the training environment, relying on a uh, on a daughter or son who honestly uh, wants to continue to be loved to the same level uh, that their parents will love and embrace them. Uh, and so oftentimes uh, the kids, you know, doing their damnedest to, you know, paint uh, a picture that still protects them. How do you have those conversations or do you have those conversations with parents to kind of bridge that gap? Well, if a parent ever calls me and feels that uh, their daughter should be playing more, uh, I basically say, well, uh, have you uh, been looking at any of the data that we produce on a daily basis? And of course they haven't. Um, there are a lot of things your daughter can do if you know she wants to get on the field. Um, and she hasn't done it yet. So I'm not, you know, overly harsh. I'm just matter of factly, just, you know, letting them know that, uh, yeah, she's not there yet. You've been doing it for a long time. What do you remember? Uh, how many players do you think you've dealt with that you thought early on, maybe they just, this wasn't going to work. They weren't going to cut it and they proved you wrong. I mean, surely there's a laundry list of those. Uh, no, usually, uh, um, I am hoping they get to their potential. Um, but here's what's typical in a five-player recruiting class. One player is better than I thought. Two are about what I thought. One is worse than I thought. One is so bad they don't get on the field in four years. So that's, that's a typical, I guess that's what I would call a 60% hit rate. Five kids are brought in. One's, you know, better than I thought. In fact, coincidentally, uh, one of those kids just walked into my office uh, to say goodbye because she just finished exams. <clears throat> and she's had an incredible freshman year. But where she is now was our hope for her. And usually there are other things that get in the way, like uh, lack of work ethic, uh, lack of competitive fire, lack of ambition, lack of coachability. There are all these things that can... Uh, compromise the evolution of an elite athlete, but she checked every box. And this kid who had never made a national youth team in her life <clears throat> has now been brought into the U20 national youth team to compete, to qualify for the U20 world championship. Uh, and it's extraordinary. She's a great story, um, but she checked every box and I was unbelievably proud of her and told her that, you know, just, you know, an hour ago when she was in my office saying, you know, Anson, I finished my last exam. I just wanted to, say goodbye. And I just, you know, told her how proud I was of her because uh, she has in effect overachieved. We knew she had potential, but as all of us know in this conversation, uh, not too many people achieve their potential. Mom deserves the best, and there's no better place to shop for Mother's Day than Whole Foods Market. They're your destination for unbeatable savings. From premium gifts to show-stopping flowers and irresistible desserts, start by saving 33% with Prime on all body care and candles. Then get a 15-stem bunch of tulips for just $9.99 each with Prime. Round out Mom's menu with festive rosé, irresistible berry chantilly cake, and more special treats. Come celebrate Mother's Day at Whole Foods Market. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co-star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now, and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. MintMobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45, equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply, if rated PG. Adson, your, your tenure in North Carolina... Uh, of course, has coincided with some, some really good uh, teams in various other sports. Uh, men's basketball and football are uh, kind of front and center. Uh, and really, the, the pattern has been for, for decades upon decades is if you come to a school like North Carolina, you perform, you have a lot of success, 
then the opportunity presents itself for you to potentially play professionally and get some money. Uh, that's kind of been flipped on its head the last two years with, with name, image, and likeness uh, coming into being. I'm curious as to your take on NIL and um, if you see positives there and also if you see some negatives. The only fear I have with the negatives is the unscrupulous coaches that are doing it wrong, uh, that are basically guaranteeing, you know, income for kids when you're, they're not allowed to. Uh, so there are all sorts of ways that this can be exploited. And we all know that there's a whole collection of people that, uh, you know, basically coach without honor <clears throat> that cheated every opportunity as long as they can get away with it. Uh, and so that's, that's the fear with NIL is that people will be doing it in, inappropriately to gain a recruiting advantage. Uh, and so for me, that's, that's the issue. But uh, from every other perspective, I think it's very positive. I love the fact that Mondo is still with us. <clears throat> and I know one reason he is. He's with us because NIL uh, has taken care of him in the most aggressive way, which I consider very positive for him and for us because I get to continue to have him represent my great university because obviously I would love for uh, our all of our teams here to do well. So <clears throat> anything that extends the lifespan of a great athlete uh, by staying here with us is a positive. So I look at that as a, is, is a positive. Uh, and then I look at, you know, people uh, like uh, May that, you know, could go anywhere. And obviously money's been dangled in front of them like you wouldn't believe. And uh, there was a wonderful event I was invited to where <clears throat> that family were the guest speakers. I really like everything about that family. I love the old man. I play pickleball with him. I mean, the guy can barely move. And yet if you lift that pickleball too high, that ball is being driven right through your throat because the guy still has upper body strength like you wouldn't believe, just like his old quarterback days at UNC. Uh, but I love the way he's raised his family. I mean, he's got national champions all over the place, uh, I guess baseball and uh, obviously basketball. And now he's got an incredible son that everybody wants that's dangling money in front of him. And uh, the family's just not tempted. Uh, because these, this is a family that lives uh, a principle-centered life. Um, and I just, I have so much admiration uh, for the people that are in a position to exploit this uh, to their own advantage. And yet uh, they don't, uh, because for them, there's a different value system. There are, there are things like there's loyalty. Um, and for me, uh, just seeing this family, but also knowing this wonderful, humble patriarch in the old man that I really, really like. Uh, and to see that, you know, he's uh, he's leaving a legacy and his legacy is, you know, uh, planting seeds in a garden he will never see uh, because uh, that's what he's passing down. He's passing down stuff, in my opinion, that is so incredibly valuable. And uh, has this been tested? Yeah, it's been tested. And there are a lot of families that don't have the, uh, I guess the principal center to reject a pile of cash. Uh, and obviously there's some families that uh, certainly desperately need it. So please don't think that I'm uh, completely uh, ignorant of the fact that in some environments, uh, these are choices that are made by uh, NIL in a very aggressive financial way. And I, and I get that. Uh, but for, uh, for a lot of us, it's not. And to see uh, that family navigate this so gracefully I'm just so proud that uh, uh, that man was a quarterback for us and one of his sons played basketball for us and another son is playing football for us. And, and uh, that's the Carolina way. And for me, uh, uh, I am so proud of so many things about this great university, uh, but that family, uh, when we're talking about NIL is one of them. Yeah. I wholeheartedly agree with you there, Anson. Uh, the May family is just fantastic from, from top to bottom. And, talk about principles. Uh, they have them. Um, critics of, of NIL, uh, and this is something I don't agree with, but some of the critics kind of come at it as, as a, uh, they say, you, these kids have, have never really had anything. Now there's an opportunity for them to get a little bit, which means maybe they're not going to work as hard because that money is much more easily available to them. And if they didn't have the money, therefore they would work harder and have more success. Sounds like you just completely dismissed that. Is that fair to say? Yeah. I mean, for me, uh, um, the true competitors aren't driven by money. I don't think Michael Jordan uh, was driven by the fact that his mother negotiated an incredible contract for him with Nike. 
I don't think all of a sudden Michael, after this was uh, negotiated, said, oh, my gosh, yeah, I'm going to start trying now. No. <laughs> the guy was competitive as hell, so he didn't need this. And I think the great ones don't need this. Now, are you rewarded for being extraordinarily competitive and successful in, in athletics? Absolutely. <clears throat> but I, I've never believed that uh, money is the driving factor uh, for uh, anyone. Um, I just, I just don't believe it. I just think that, uh, you know, there are people that are incredibly competitive and there are ones that aren't and the ones that aren't, you know, having some money dangled out there, isn't going to change them. Um, and the ones that are competitive, uh, not having money out there, uh, didn't change them. I mean, <clears throat> one of the most competitive athletes I've ever coached in my life is a woman by the name of April Heinrichs. And she had this fire <clears throat> when back in her day, there was no money on the table for her ever, ever, I mean, that she could foresee. So that's not why she competed. She just enjoyed beating people to death. Um, and so, uh, yeah, I don't think uh, uh, that's the incentive. When you look at your career, um, it, you know, you've won a ton, obviously. And I said we weren't going to talk about your accomplishments on the field terribly much, but I want to ask you what you remember the most. Coach Smith used to always say, and other successful coaches have said, they don't really remember the wins as much as they remember the losses. And obviously you guys probably had one of the toughest ones, you know, that, that can happen last year um, in the national championship. What do you remember the most on the field when you look back over those years? Yeah, I'm like uh, Dean Smith, but I think most coaches <clears throat> remember the losses uh, <clears throat> uh, because they are they're they're poignant, and you'll this will crack you up. For the first time, I looked at that game in more depth last night, uh, for the first time since December, and uh, honestly, I had a hard time uh, getting to sleep last night because <clears throat> uh, we were. Uh, uh, Clearly, there was a mistake. Either the referee didn't see it or the referee saw it and, and didn't call it. <clears throat> so, uh, and I, I feel for uh, the seniors because they, uh, they deserve to go out on top. <clears throat> um, and they had a remarkable year. And so from that perspective, uh, I really feel for them. Um, so, yeah, for me, it, it is the losses. When you look at that, let, let's talk about that play. Why isn't there replay? There's a replay in every other sport. There's replay, um, you know, a ball out of bounds or something in a basketball game. There's touchdown or no touchdown in football. Why wouldn't there be replay on made goals in collegiate soccer? Or am I missing something there? No, you're, you're spot on. And honestly, uh, to be completely straightforward, I think most schools aren't prepared for that because it requires <clears throat> additional camera work and everything else. Uh, but rest assured, uh, uh, the ACC unanimously uh, voted uh, VAR into uh, resolving issues in conference. And of course, the catalyst for that was what happened to us. But I also want to give a shout out to uh, our commissioner. Uh, he was so upset with what he could clearly see was an egregious error. Um, he put me on a mission to basically talk to referees to look at that and see if uh, they agree that that was a foul. And I did. And any referee that looks at it from all the different angles will, will uh, claim that it was a foul. And then the 16 seconds left, we're national champions. And so that was a horrendous error. Uh, and we just didn't have VAR available. So I'm not one to throw the referee under the bus. Maybe she didn't see it. Maybe her uh, assistant referee on the sideline also didn't see it. Uh, maybe the penalty box was just too crowded for them to make a call there. Uh, but then, of course, that's when you do use uh, VAR uh, as sort of a, a tool to resolve, you know, what ends up happening. And so uh, rest assured, within the conference, <clears throat> within the ACC, uh, we are going to uh, use uh, uh, VAR to resolve issues like that. Yeah, that was something. That, that was, uh, yeah. I mean, it was a perfect kick by that young lady for for the other team. But good gracious, that was an interesting ending there. And I know it had to hurt. You mentioned the seniors. I couldn't imagine being in their shoes there. You've talked a lot about personal narrative, competitive Calderon, um, and, and all the things that you have built your career on. 
So, so what is your personal narrative when you look well, back? First of all, let me correct uh, the perfect kick statement. That was not a perfect kick. If See, I'm not, not a soccer guy. <laughs> if you're not into the back of the net, that's three steps. One, two, three, and then the goalkeeper's catching it. But if you're picking yourself up out of the back of the net, it's hard to run three steps back and catch the ball. <clears throat> so uh, I just wanted to correct that. I didn't want anyone to have the illusion that <clears throat> that kick uh, was so good that the goalkeeper couldn't have gotten it. No, that is easily within range of the goalkeeper as long as someone's not shoving her into the back of the net. Uh, so Noted. let me just correct that off the, uh, the bat. Uh, and again, I'm just trying to get uh, your narrative to the truth as fast as possible. <laughs> Uh, okay, so um, so what was the question again? I said, what is your per and, and look, I have no problem being corrected by the greatest to ever do it. None. <laughs> uh, your personal narrative. I mean, you have spent your life shaping young people, young women over the last 40 years to their personal narrative, their their journey to the truth and all that. What is Anson Dorrance's? Huh. Um I put it on the tee for you. Yeah, no, I, I appreciate that. Um, I think um, my life has been shaped by sport and the University of North Carolina. <clears throat> so what I guess I've done my whole life, in addition to uh, having and raising uh, an absolutely wonderful family, is I've given back to my sport and I've given back to my university because <clears throat> those are the two things and the people at my university uh, that have shaped me the most. And so uh, uh, my personal narrative, certainly at my advanced age, is doing what I can to uh, uh, thank the university uh, and uh, the athletic department uh, and the people I'm surrounded with and the people I'm currently uh, training but also the sport I love. I mean, you guys will love this story. <clears throat> um, one of the most difficult opponents I've ever coached against is the coach at Florida State. His name is Mark Krikorian. I have huge admiration for him because as I mentioned earlier, I think uh, what has shaped me most are my failures. And uh, like no coach I've competed against, uh, he was very tough to beat. And he was dominating us <clears throat> uh, for the last block of uh, competitions. And all of a sudden, uh, there was a collision between him and his athletic director, and he left Florida State. I wanted to do everything I could to keep him in the game. He's too good to lose. He's too good for our game, for women's soccer to lose. And so I was connected with Michelle Kang, the billionaire owner of the Washington Spirit. And uh, I did everything I can in collusion with uh, Michelle Kang to make sure Mark Krikorian stayed in the game as the sporting director uh, at uh, uh, the Washington Spirit. <clears throat> so for me, uh, the gesture was, <clears throat> uh, even though this was an extraordinary competitor, and I think a lot of times when we collide with uh, people that we have difficulty beating, uh, a hatred develops. That's That never happened with me. My admiration for him is still was off the charts. <clears throat> so I was so happy when he stayed in the game because we need the great ones to stay in our game. So for me, <clears throat> uh, uh, the narrative is still ongoing. Um, Sport and the University of North Carolina taught me everything. And I'm going to give back to both as long as I can. Anson, before we let you get out of here, I want to talk about the impact of sport in general and the value that it provides for, for young people especially. Um, as I'm sure you know, there's been a decline in youth sports over the last couple of decades. And the Aspen Institute uh, had a survey a couple of years ago said that in 2008, um, 45% of young children played in organized sport by 2018. That was down to 38%. Um, what is the value, uh, in, in sport and the impact that it can provide for, for young people? Well, first of all, we've been chatting about that. Obviously the opportunity to fail and not be scarred by it, uh, the opportunity to fail and then recover and, and learn from that and then take that into the real world. So for me, uh, that's the stuff we've been chatting about as well. But this is another very critical area. <clears throat> I think uh, we have to continue to be bold. And I think athletics uh, gives us a confidence to be bold. 
And I think uh, we don't have enough uh, leaders out there. Certainly we don't have enough principle-centered leaders unless just through an amazing coincidence, <clears throat> you know, most of the leaders that we've elected to uh, Congress and the Senate um, are, you know, a unique collection of, you know, spineless jellyfish uh, that basically drift in whatever direction the money's coming from or, you know, where they can continue to desperately cling on to power. Uh, we've lost a, a real leadership because uh, real leadership isn't the classical see where the parade is going and run to the front and grab the flag, which is where modern leadership seems to be going. No, leadership, is this the right direction? Am I pulling people in the right direction? Oh, I'm pulling uh, people in this direction, but I'm hated for it. So no, I'm going to join the gang and, you know, run to the front of the parade and grab the flag again. No, leadership is difficult. Uh, leadership is not a popularity contest. And I think what's happening right now is most people think it is. The thing that sports give you gives you is that. It gives you people when the stuff is hitting the fan to say, no, this isn't good enough. This isn't the right direction. We're not working hard enough. And we need those kinds of people. So for me, uh, I think sport has huge value uh, to teach us uh, uh, basically fundamental uh, opportunities to lead like uh, sport gives us uh, because there aren't enough leaders out there right now. Hang on one second. <laughs> I wanted to see if uh, the president was calling. No, apparently it wasn't him. Okay. Um, I guess I should put this on mute. Uh, here we go. But anyway, so yeah, I think sports <clears throat> has huge value. In fact, uh, I was teaching a course this past spring. Um, it's a triple I course at the university. Uh, uh, the visionary was Ariane Waite, who teaches in our exercise sports science department. And here's what's really interesting, and this uh, uh, continues to extend uh, the answer to the question that you threw out there, Greg. <clears throat> um, she took the cohort of the athletes that have come here, and she took the cohort of the rest of the university. And of course, the rest of the university, if you compare the two cohorts academically, uh, the uh, regular admissions process brings in an extraordinary scholar, extraordinary academic. But here's what was interesting with her research. Even though the average athlete that comes in isn't it the standard for the average student that is brought into the University of North Carolina, in all the metrics that all of us would consider uh, as uh, examples of success, the athletes pound the rest of the university. And she even excluded all the athletes that have made fortunes you know, from their craft and uh, one of my favorite stories is, you know, uh, what major at the University of North Carolina will project the greatest average income um, for a lifetime? And of course, the answer is geography. Why? Because Michael Jordan majored in geography. And of course, when you average in uh, the fact that, you know, as we learned from uh, the recent, you know, Nike origin story, uh, he has 400 million of passive income that comes in every year to him because the shoes that are sold with jump man on them, you know what I'm saying? So uh, it's, it's really interesting. Uh, so she's not including uh, those outliers, uh, the ones that make incredible money uh, from uh, playing their sports. She's talking about the average income for someone that participated in sports at the University of North Carolina with the rest of the student population. So with that vision, she started this course and invited me to co-teach it with her and a gentleman from, a wonderful gentleman, very intelligent uh, man from education by the name of Jeff Green. The title of the course, The Art and Science of Expertise. And so what's my responsibility in the course? I wanna teach all the students sitting in front of me what I try to teach all of my student athletes because of the value that this experience has on shaping their post-collegiate careers. And so sport has huge value. Uh, and uh, I'm trying to distill that down into seven lectures that I'm sharing with the, uh, the student population. So uh, I'm even doing some scientific research for this now. So, so there you go, gentlemen. Indeed, great stuff. Last, uh, I want you to impart your wisdom on a teenage soccer player um, she, it's a young, young lady. She, she has visions of being very good and you have an opportunity to talk to her. She's 12, 13 years old. What would you say to her, um, and people like her at this point in their lives? First of all, 
don't listen to anyone that's telling you at the age of 12, you have to specialize in your sport. Blow all those people off. Just fall in love with sport. I don't care what it is. Basketball, volleyball, lacrosse, soccer, track and field. I mean, whatever you love doing, just jump into it. Because that's the key. The key is to love playing sports. Make it a, a lifetime pursuit. Um, so make sure that's a part of it. And then if you decide that soccer is a sport you want to specialize in, you know, don't drop the others. There's a great cross-training value in playing all these other sports. But if soccer is your dream, live on a wall, play 1v1. Living on a wall is you've got this ball and you've got this, you know, brick wall and you smash the ball up against the wall as hard as you can to develop power in both legs. And as the ball comes off the wall, you are preparing it with a perfect first touch and then smashing it back on the wall. And so there's nothing better for your development as a player than to live on a wall and then play 1v1 at every opportunity. And especially for girls, for some reason, this confrontation is not comfortable because of the sociology and the way we raise our, our girls and young women. And then if you are a young woman, don't be embarrassed about being competitive. I mean, if you're a young boy and you're competitive, you're put on a pedestal. And if you're a young girl and you're competitive, for some reason you're excoriated. That is absolutely ridiculous. So don't genuflect to that. Don't allow people to look down at you because you wanna beat everyone to death. There's nothing wrong with having competitive fire because that's an incredibly powerful tool in becoming an elite athlete. So live on a wall, play 1v1, uh, basically master the ball, and don't give up all the sports you love. Play all of them as long as you can. Indeed. Great wisdom from head coach, UNC women's soccer, Anson Dorrance. Coach Dorrance, uh, I know Greg and I agree. Thank you so much for taking the opportunity to talk to us and set the record straight on a few things uh, that, that I took the wrong. I was just speaking, you know, in hypotheticals, perfect pass, perfect kick, all that stuff. It's look, it's been fabulous to talk to you and get some of your knowledge and wisdom. Well, Tommy, you're very kind. Greg, you're very kind. I thoroughly enjoyed it. And, and Tommy, that was the lightest of reprimands. Trust me. Um, <laughs> well, I want to go out to practice and see like a real reprimand. Yeah, yeah, you know, so yeah, that was the most gentle one I could have extended to anyone. So uh, trust me, uh, um, I was very gentle with you. Well, I do appreciate <laughs> it. And uh, like I said, I have no problem being corrected by the greatest to ever do it. Coach Dorrance, thank you for joining us. Well, you guys were a joy. Gentlemen, thank you very much. Thanks, yeah. Coach. Take care. Greg, uh, you know, pretty solid part two. I mean, I, I think the... The parent discussion early, I think, is what I really wanted to get into because you've dealt with it um, in what you do in your arena. I've certainly dealt with it on, and, and, and for the record, far less. I mean, if Anson Dorrance has to deal with parents, right? think about how crazy parents are. I mean, yeah. just a fabulous thing. But I, I just think it is fascinating to hear him talk about that and talk about how things have changed over the years. Yeah, and Tommy, we talked about this a little bit when when Roy Williams retired. Uh, but one of the things about Roy Williams and and the supplies to, to Mac Brown, Karen Shelton, Anson, of course, is these individuals are so successful in what they do that they have an avenue now where they can just be completely honest and, and tell you what it's like and how it is. And there are a lot of coaches who are just trying to stay afloat and keep their job, and they have to be more PC. Um, and, I mean, Anson was incredibly refreshing, uh, just, just kind of landing out there, open with his thoughts. He understands how to do it. I mean, the guy has 20-plus national championships. Um, and I, I think one of the important things here, uh, talk if we go back to football, I remember back in 2007, 2008, uh, talking with Butch Davis and Kenny Browning had been coaching, I think defensive line and they moved into running backs. And I asked Butch about that. And Butch said, if you can coach, if you're a good coach, you can coach any position. And I firmly believe you can extend that to say that if you're a good coach, you can coach pretty much any sport. I know a lot of people have watched Ted Lasso. That's kind of the basis of that story is, Hey, this guy was such a fantastic 
American football coach uh, that he can do it at a different, you know, different level and a different sport. Uh, and it worked for him. And I, I think that's absolutely true. I don't think there's any doubt in my mind that Anson Dorrance can coach any other sport and have a ton of success because he understands the psychological uh, value and impact of imparting leadership and lessons and drive and competition to student athletes or athletes in general. And I think that's the key component of it. That's, that's kind of the main takeaway for me is, uh, yeah, he's had a ton of success coaching soccer, uh, but individuals like that can have success coaching pretty much anything they want. Yeah, and your point there, he understands the mindset and what goes on in the minds of people. And look, anybody can tell you the technique to hit the sled or the technique to kick the ball or do all the work he was talking about. But it takes – the elite coaches are the ones that get it between the ears for all the players and yep. can put that – and, and your point, and I want people to understand this, that listen to this, he is at a level where he can speak his mind freely – because he's earned the right to do so. And quite frankly, some of the stuff I'm sure would make a parent cringe that we just listened to when he's talking about, you know, your daughter or your child getting their ass kicked at practice and they need to be telling you the truth and all that. I think it's fascinating. I think it's awesome. I mean, I agree. He's still doing it now, but he's definitely the old school mindset that I love. And look, everybody that's watched that UCLA national championship game, thought what he just talked about and to hear him discuss it, to hear how that'll change the game. Um, and I thought the kick was pretty good, but he's right. Goalie couldn't get it when she's on her back in the back of the net. So <laughs> I stand corrected. Um, and that is why a gentle uh, scolding, Tommy. a gentle scold, a gentle, gentle reprimand. I said, I would hate to see the tough ones folks. That's been next level with head coach Anson Dorrance. That was part two. Shout out to Jody for hooking us up. Shout out to Coach Dorrance for uh, coming on for two times to talk to Greg and I. And shout out to Greg Barnes for just being Greg Barnes. Shout out to Johnny T-Shirt and Johnny T-Shirt for being great sponsors of all of Inside Carolina and all of Inside Carolina's podcast. Greg and I will come back at some point down the road with some more stuff. It's going to be hard to top, Greg. It's going to be hard to top. Probably the greatest team coach ever. Um, but we'll, we'll try to get it done, folks. Thanks, everybody, for joining us. What's up, y'all? This is four-time NBA champ, Andre Iguodala. Yo, and this is his best friend, the Ohio State legend, Evan Marcel Turner the first. Every Wednesday, we drop a new episode on our show, Point Four. We're talking basketball, business, and all the culture in between. From locker room stories to some basketball analysis from those who've been in the game. Now, it is a dude average 29 and 11. God, what it take to be an all-star? A win. Subscribe to Point Forward, the podcast, so you don't miss a thing.